Sportages. Sport gets smarter. Today we have Chris Hainbury on the show. He's a Canadian squash coach, a former junior and senior national champion. And he also runs the popular Serious Squash blog, uh, which a lot of squash fans are very uh, well aware of and follow his work. If you don't know about it, that's where he shares his own experiences in the game, from coaching to different developments in the sport. On Serious Squash, you can also find high-quality squash goods for purchase to help you improve your game. And he's also, he's also on Patreon, so go check that out. Uh, welcome to the show, Chris. Oh, thanks a lot for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, uh, same here, same here. You know, you, you obviously do so many things in the squash space, and I wanted to sort of ask you, with the, with the first question, something a little bit outside the realm of the game of squash and more so on, I guess, the marketing side of things, which is, you know, one of the things that I often see coming up in discussion when I talk to mates and, you know, people within squash itself, which is squash and social media. Um, so, you know, on Instagram, for example, with Serious Squash, you have over 10,000 followers. Do you, when I look at squash players, even, you know, I, I won't take names, but even in like the top 20 in the men's rankings, the women's rankings, I'll often find players who don't have public accounts, who have under, you know, forget 10,000, under 2,000 followers, are not regularly posting, and just not creating a brand. What are your views on that? And having been in that space, do you think that there's more that can be done there? Because I definitely think so. But do you think that there's more that can be done there, both from the context of the players, but also from the PSA and the tour? Well, I, I definitely think the PSA um, should be doing a lot more because it's basically a free way to promote the sport. And as a small sport, I think social media is like, you know, probably the best platform that a sport can use if they're smart with it. And, um, you know, I, I, I can just relate personally to me, like starting when you're posting stuff, you kind of feel like, oh, like, I don't really want attention. So I think like just some players maybe have that perspective where they just you know, they just are focused solely on their squash and that's all that matters. Uh, they're not thinking about post-career. Um, and it's also just a lot of work to really like come up with, you know, maybe interesting content and always post things that, you know, look good. So I don't know if it's like that balance between what their focus is, how much work it takes. Um, you know, maybe they just don't really want that attention. They just want to kind of focus more on, um, you know, their squash game. But there's a huge opportunity, I think, for, you know, increasing their sponsorship um, currently as a player and also just, you know, beyond their pro playing career, like just having opportunities for work or, you know, making contacts. Um, you know, I, I know it for sure it's helped me like with coaching and meeting different people around the world, um, probably with, you know, getting some jobs that I've had as well. Um, and it's just a good way, I think, to, you know, you kind of do have to brand yourself. Like, it's not like you're in a team where the team's kind of promoting you and they have an account. Like, you know, I, I mean, yeah, PSA could do more to like promote each of the players, maybe like have links for like, you know, their Instagram or whatever, Facebook, um, when their, their matches are up. 
Um, I mean, I, I feel like a lot of pro squash players also are kind of like, don't really like sharing kind of what they're up to. So maybe that's part of it. Like, you know, some of the retired guys are great, like Remy, Nick Matthew, uh, Laura Mazzaro. Like, you know, I think they're really good at sharing some, some training tips and stuff, but you know, I, I think it's a little more hush on, uh, you know, the current players because, you know, it's, they're competing against, you know, other amazing players. So if they gave away all their tips, um, you know, then obviously maybe they feel like they're, they're losing a bit of an edge that they have over their competition. So, yeah, I definitely think that's, that's an area that, you know, the PSA could work at and uh, whether it's providing some kind of course, um, you know, basic instruction on like, you know, why this is important and look at the growth of the sport as a whole, instead of, you know, it's, you know, don't worry about people looking at you as being wanting attention or, you know, that, uh, you know, I, I think it's, yeah, definitely a huge missed opportunity. So there's only a few actually active players, I'd say are doing a really good job. Like Amanda Sobe is probably one of the better, better players, um, you know, more active Instagram accounts, kind of has some fun with it and you kind of get to see someone outside of the court and it kind of makes you want to root for them because you can relate to them. You can see they're not, you know, they don't have a big ego, um, you know, and I feel like that personal connection is something that the top players or any player I think uh, could benefit from. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. You know, you, you touch on that aspect of personal and private and sort of breaking, uh, that barrier and people being hesitant to do it but when you look at other sports uh bigger sports it's almost like a part of the job so if you're an athlete if you're representing yourself you're representing your team you're representing a country uh within the sport you have to be on social media because it's going to grow the sport um so from you know your personal experience and you touched on it a little bit about it also being a means to network and connect with relevant people, which in turn creates opportunities for you. Tell me, like, break down a little, could you break down a little bit about that from your own experience and how that's benefited you, uh, perhaps on, on the court itself or even when it comes to serious squash? Uh, well, I've, when I've done some traveling, I've met people who, you know, recognize me just basically on the brand and, uh, you know, and that even started before Instagram, like just having my blog and I remember traveling in Malaysia and I was at Penang junior open and, and, uh, you know, a parent came up to me, he was like, Oh, are you from serious squash? And I was like, yeah. And, and, uh, then he's like, Oh, I love your blog. And like, it was really insightful. So, you know, I just, you know, it was kind of neat to go somewhere and, you know, you didn't tell anyone I was going there, but, um, you know, it's, it's kind of cool to know that people from all around the world, um, you know, have that access where they want to learn more about squash and, and hear my perspective. Like there's not a lot of people doing that, uh, especially for free. So I think, um, you know, and later on, actually, you know, his son and his daughter came over overseas from Asia and, and came and stayed with me in Canada for a week and, and did some training with me uh, twice. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, obviously that's just kind of one scenario, but it's definitely, you know, if I never stepped out of my comfort zone and like just put myself out there on, you know, cause you're just saying your perspective and, you know, I'm not always right. I don't know everything. Like, you know, I was never number one in the world, but you know, I have a lot of opinions and experience and, and I'm not afraid to like share them. And I, you know, I might say like, this is always going to be 100% factual, but this is what I think, um, you know, and I think that some people don't want to 
kind of go out there and and say what they think because they're not always you know 100% maybe confident in in what they're saying and um, you know and and again I think like in that first part like they just want to keep it kind of uh, discreet and not share um, you know maybe too many tips and uh, they want to just keep it like if you're a coach you want to just keep your tips for your athletes and that's actually how I started a serious squash was like I wanted like my athletes to have a resource to like go and look at and like follow up on outside of practice um, and then I started to think you know well why am I just only doing this for my athletes like I don't care like if there's some really keen person you know in England or South Africa or wherever like I'm happy that they have that opportunity because I wish I had that opportunity when I was a kid like I was so keen to learn more uh, but it was so hard to find information it was so hard to find video um, so I think that's why I started to you know try to promote it a bit more uh, internationally and welcomed it so yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, what you've, what you've essentially been able to do is bring squash, even if it's to, you know, and that's, that's essentially the job. If you're able to bring it out from that shell or that bubble, even a bit, that's breaking, uh, you know, breaking the, breaking that bubble or breaking that notion that squash is limited to people who are only within squash. Um, and what you said ties in really well with another, like the, it just made, it got me thinking. And when you talk about once again, coming back to that idea of not wanting to share tips, uh, people being very sort of concerned and, and, you know, that's a completely viable reason. The fact that I don't, I don't want my competitor, uh, my competition to know what I'm doing that gives me the edge. But I, I come back to the same point. When you look at other sports, um, athletes are willing to give away or their coaches or their teams are willing to give away aspects of what they do because on the one hand, it's, you know, you're doing, you're doing that favor of promoting the game. And on the other hand, it's a brand or a sale or you're marketing yourself. So do you think that, you know, there should be more in regards to squash players doing that? And I know you've touched on it a little bit, or is it the other side where they're giving away too much to the opponents? Um, and it's probably the right way to go. So perhaps like finding that balance, but at the same time, sort of, you know, being able to market yourself, how, 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 in your opinion, do you think that fits in and which direction should squash as a whole, perhaps institutionally, but also from the perspective of players and coaches be heading? Well, I'd be very surprised to see like if a federation, like a country would go and post like, here's all our information um, just because, you know, they're, they basically put all the, that money, the resources into gathering that information and having a good program. Um, so I wouldn't expect that, but I think from a player's perspective, like if you're already one of the best players in the world, like, I don't know how much that is going to hurt you to share what you're exactly you're doing, like how much of what you're doing, because everyone's different. So what's right for you doesn't mean it's going to be right for one of your opponents. And they already have their program, their coaches, uh, their team in place that are kind of guiding them and helping them through this. So, I mean, you know, I think overall it would benefit squash a lot more. It would make 
all the viewers, I think, a lot more like uh, informed, and it would help a lot of the amateurs, a lot of the juniors, knowing that you kind of have to build up to this uh, idea. And you know, I think Paul Cole is one of the only ones that I can think of that actually does that sometimes, and you know, that's great. But I remember Serious Squash a couple of weeks ago. I posted like a poll, and I'm like, "Do you think a squash player has to be able to uh, squat heavy?" to be a good squash player. Like, cause some people have told me like, Oh, Ali Farag never uses over X, like a very small number of weight. Like it's basically body weight exercises where I know some other pro squash players are like, you know, going to bench press a lot of weight. And it was pretty split like 50, 50 about what people think. So, you know, there's, you know, a lot of knowledgeable people that, you know, reply to that poll and they're still split on what they think. And obviously that has to do with body type and genetics and stuff as well. Um, but I, you know, I still think that kind of like simple question, but like, it's hard to get actually a straight answer. I think even if you talk to a knowledgeable trainer, you know, it's more about, um, you know, what I, you know, what Ali Farag does versus what Paul Cole does. And they can both play at that same standard, but their training would be totally different. And I think that'd be so interesting because in squash, I, I really think the winning and losing like 98% of it happens before they get on court. Like that's all the preparation, all the years of training, um, you know, all the the mental skills um, they've worked on to get to that point. So I think that would be really, for me, almost be more interesting sometimes than uh, watching the match. Yeah, right. And, you know, on on that note, I think another thing that ties into this is the, everlasting debate that's been you know through and through all the squash circles and everyone's talked about it we've talked about it on sportages with lots of uh squash athletes lots of people in in the squash business the olympics and squash yeah uh i've in all honesty i've i've heard a lot of things i've heard the you know it's it's a shame squash isn't there squash needs to be there uh who cares if squash isn't there? Uh, we need to sort out our internal problems first and look at building the game internally. What are your thoughts on you know squash not being in the Olympics in spite of the fact that there's been so much work done? From what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, to get the game into the Olympics. Um, and how do you think, you know, like obviously the social media front, it's pretty obvious if the game's in in the Olympics, you're going to get a, a surge in social media and followers and people getting into the game. But how else do you think that can benefit, um, you know, squash as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I remember as a kid just expecting one day, like I'd represent Canada at the Olympics for squash. And, uh, you know, now I'm, you know, 38 years old, is still not in the Olympics. So it's not something I'm actually expecting to happen. Um, but it's something that should have happened by now because of how good the sport is, how international the sport is, um, you know, how they can put up a court anywhere. Like it's, it's definitely a sport that should be in the Olympics. Um, you know, I, I like, and then you see some of the sports that are getting in that are like, you know, brand new, or they feel like they're, you know, kind of a made up sport and like, Hey, how does squash have so much more history? And, and it's so international, like, how does it not have that? And, you know, I think a lot comes down to just people who aren't squash players, you know, just if they're going to watch it, are they actually going to enjoy it? I don't know if it's like a viewer friendly kind of sport unless you actually play squash. Um, you know, I, I don't know, like, 
the actual answers for sure why it's not in in the Olympics. I actually coached a girl who was in the youth Olympic kind of games in uh, in I think it was in Brazil, um, like I think two years ago. Um, so I, I thought there was steps that they were taking to get there, um, but yeah, for some reason I don't know. No country's actually been able to put it in, and uh, you know I don't know how much that would actually impact um, Canada because I know the main I think. Um, point that you would or the main thing you would get of squash being the Olympics from a lot of countries would be increased funding uh, from the government so in Canada there's something called youth or the podium own the podium I think um, and basically they put money into sports where they believe they have the best chance of meddling so right now like because Canada <clears throat> Canada doesn't have like somebody who's like close to being top three in the world in men's or women's uh, squash so I would find it hard that our funding would really increase, but some countries where I think they have those players and their maybe government funding would increase quite a bit. Uh, so that would be amazing as a squash player, just to be able to go and, you know, make a better living and actually have a chance of winning a medal at the Olympics. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, it's the kind of the pinnacle of sport, except for this summer, unfortunately, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if, you know, I mean, I still think one day it'll probably happen. I don't, I just, I don't know if squash needs it. I don't think it would make a huge difference in Canada. Like most kids who are in Canada, um, they're thinking about, you know, they either want to play professionally or play at college. And, you know, I, I don't know if that's, uh, if any of them are growing up anymore, kind of hoping on that Olympic dream because it's, you know, been so long now and still nothing's happened. So I don't know about like Australia and, yeah. other parts of the world but yeah well i mean you know you you raise you raise a good point there where you you touch on that and that's that's been one of the contentious contentious things that squash isn't a viewer friendly game if you don't necessarily know the sport to an extent i would argue that there are lots of sports in olympic in the olympics that you know i probably wouldn't personally watch um and a lot of other people wouldn't and there is space. I may be coming from a place of bias, having some knowledge of the game, but it's action packed. It's fast paced. The things that, um, you know, the athletes do are feats that you don't often get to see in a lot of sports that are in the Olympics. Um, do you as a coach come across people who see the game without having played it and get interested in it. Is that common? Um, Cause I, from what I hear from a lot of people is, oh, my parents played the game. Um, or, you know, I had a, I had a cousin who, who was really good at it. And, you know, I started playing with them. Is that, do you come across uh, the former quite often or at all uh, as a coach where, you know, you, people come up to you or young kids or, uh, someone's parents saying, oh, this looks great. Like, you know, I want my kid to get involved or I want to start playing. Uh, pretty rarely. Like most people, like if they haven't played it or seen it, like they actually have no idea what it is. And then I try to explain it and they're like, oh, kind of like racquetball. Um, I remember one time coming back into uh, customs uh, here in Canada, going through the border. And then uh, they're like, oh, how did you afford like a one month trip in Bali? I'm like, what do you do here in Canada? I'm like, I'm a squash coach. And the guy's like, what you what you can make enough money as a squash coach. And like, you know, that's, you know, I just think people don't know, like, unless they're in squash, that there's like potential, like there's lots of good clubs and, you know, universities and 
uh, lots of great junior programs all around the world. And it feels like it's a very small niche um, <clears throat> network, but that's also, you know, kind of the good part about it because the people who are in it, whether it's a coach, fan, you know, you know, athlete, like they all are obsessed, right? They don't like leave the game uh, unless it's due to some kind of injury or health problem. But even if, if they do, they stay connected. Those are like usually their best friends. That's still the people that they, you know, hang out with and get together with outside of squash. So I think it's like a really tight knit, close community, um, you know, even without that. But it's, you know, generally been kind of tricky to get new people in the sport because I find as a coach, like, if somebody has very little skill in any racket sport, like they're going to go on a squash court and just, you know, not be able to, like they might hit a few, a few shots, but they can't, two people who are just starting can't really rally together. Um, so it's not going to be fun unless they're playing with somebody who actually can rally and hit the ball back to them. Um, and then when you're doing that, like it basically has to be like one-on-one -on -one or, you know, one-on-two, like you can't have a big group like kicking around a soccer ball or, you know, chasing a basketball or, or something like that. So it is a little bit harder to get somebody new into the sport. Uh, obviously, it's such a physical sport too. So if you're a bit older um, and you're playing squash, like you're gonna be so sore as you get better. Like it's just so unnatural to lunge so much, um, you know? So I think it physically is very demanding. And uh, even when I'm my fittest, like it's so hard on my body to go and play like a four or five game match. And if to play a tournament, then I'd have to maybe play again that day or the next day. And it doesn't seem to matter how hard I train, like my body just has trouble like adapting that. It's, it's just such a tough sport. Like kids get used to it, just, you know, the rubber bands, but for adults, I think it's very hard to get into. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can, I can agree uh, being a bit of a, an amateur player myself that it, it can get hectic, <laughs> but it's definitely yeah. worth it uh, to, to, you know, everyone watching this, go try it out if you haven't. Uh, it'll be a new experience if nothing else. So take your mates, take your partner, whoever it is, and just, just go have a try. I mean, there's no harm in it, right? Um, yeah. I wanted to move on to something a little uh, that's been in the news a bit more, uh, and it's a bit more relevant in recent times. So I don't, I'm not too familiar with how it is in Canada, but I know that varsity squash in the U.S. is a big deal. Um, and a lot of the top athletes, uh, pro athletes, come out of that system. And very recently, I think, uh, I think one of, I think it was Brown University, which cut funding to varsity squash within uh, their university. Is this unprecedented from what you understand? And do you think that this is sort of, you know, this may potentially lead to some sort of domino effect. And is that some, or is that something to be concerned about for people within squash? Well, I've actually been on the inner loop because I'm, I've been named like the head coach at Western University here in London. Uh, so I'm on all the emails with the uh, CSA in, in the US. Um, and basically what Brown did is they actually haven't cut the funding. They just reduced the, them to club status. So They've, they've said to everyone, okay, we're going to maintain the same level of funding, even though we're only going to have a club status. And obviously everyone at Brown, like there's a petition going around um, from a Brown player, uh, the CSA, the College Squash Association, like they've sent in a letter uh, to Brown, uh, just kind of going through the points and saying 
how can you do this? Like you're, you know, top 15 school in the men's and women's division. Um, yeah, so I, I honestly have no idea why they did it. I've read Brown's statement and, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it has anything to do with COVID and just not wanting to travel their students to other, other universities because it's not just squash that they've reduced. They've, they've cut actually quite a few of their sports and reduced into club teams. Mm -hmm. um, and I think basically in, in their notice, they just basically want to have a more... I guess, well-rounded student experience and not so focused on athletics. Maybe this way they'll be able to have more uh, people participate because it won't be as competitive. And obviously people who are like alumni of Brown, um, you know, or currently go there and play in that squash team or are thinking of going there to play in the squash team, like, you know, I'm sure a lot are going to be transferring to other schools. And I, I don't know, I'd be very surprised if other schools kind of followed this. I I have no idea where that it you know that uh, decision came from. It sounded like it was uh, almost no notice at all um, to the students there, yeah. and you know just being this late, kind of in this you know into the season, looking to forwards to next year, like it's just not a lot of time for, to prepare. So it's you know I don't know. I thought it was very surprising. Um, you know I know a lot of people in the squash scene are unhappy. Like I think the college squash game in in the U.S. is kind of driving the sport. Um, so yeah, I think very, I don't know, very surprising. I don't, I don't know if there's another back reason behind what Brown is doing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I suggest if you can go to the CSA, uh, website or you go to Brown, um, website as well, you can actually read, uh, the information they released to their students and it's, it's, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty surprising. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I came across it on uh, on social media, and I saw that U.S. squash was wasn't very happy. Uh, so I thought, why not? Why not ask yourself? Since I'm I'm talking to you right now, I thought it'd be a good good opportunity to get a sense of that myself. Um, so, Chris, I wanted to move on to something a little different, and again with elements of that popularity side of things. I know we we we're treading a bit too much towards that side, but these are some questions that, you know, I think that you, you know, you have insight into uh, and they would really benefit for us to sort of get your, your perspective on. Uh, let's take another uh, racket sport uh, yeah. as an example. Uh, the, the pinnacle is tennis and tennis does this interesting thing where, you know, it brings in veterans of the game. It has youth games variations of the game things like touch tennis all while their biggest grand slams are being uh broadcasted live so it'll start at 7 a.m and end at 10 p.m and you know if you want to go and see um you know the wheelchair tennis you can you can go and check that out if you want to see something else you can do that too so from what i understand what that does is it you know, there's a continuous sort of element of it becoming almost like a, a festival uh, where the sport goes on for a few, like a significant amount of days, but you've just got tennis after tennis after tennis in various shapes and forms. What are your thoughts on that in regards to squash, perhaps incorporating that to a larger extent? Yeah, I, I think the one most difficult part would be if you're trying to have like multiple events at the same venue, like a pro 
and junior um, different amateur divisions, just the amount of courts. Um, you know, usually the pro events are going to be played, at least the big ones, on, you know, a glass court uh, with lots of grandstands. Um, if you're doing a men's and women's pro tournament, if you're looking at a draw of like 32 or maybe more for one of the bigger events, like you're just looking at a lot of matches. Uh, so I think the numbers would be tough. Although you look at something like the U.S. Junior Open and they'll, they'll have almost a thousand kits, but they'll use, you know, four or five venues of, you know, 10 to 16 squash courts. So they have like this huge resource. And, um, you know, so I think if, if squash did try to do that, it'd be really interesting because, you know, as a junior player, you want to play the British Junior Open. Um, you know, there's an adult you know, British, you know, Open as well. And those are kind of the two um, kind of main tournaments uh, like in the previous 30 years. Um, I don't know if that would help it get more TV coverage that tennis kind of gets. Like, I don't know why tennis got to that point where they're just on TV and, you know, I, I think they did a better job like having their majors set aside and having these big trophies and, and uh, people can recognize them. Definitely they've done a better job like promoting their top athletes. Their top athletes tend to win like year after year after year. Uh, or they're always there. So people have their favorites. Like people love Roger Federer, they love Nadal, like, you know, Andy Murray. So, you know, I think everyone kind of, you know, those those are stars, right? Like nobody's going to know any of the top squash players if, they, if they're not in the squash world. So it's just, you know, hard to really, you know, get to that point. But, you know, I think it's, you know, a good idea and something we can learn from. There's definitely a lot more money in tennis, there's a lot from, um, you know, I think even just I've had to read the squash uh, or no, the Tennis Canada kind of guidelines for their high performance. And they just have way more resources for their athletes, uh, for their coaches. I mean, it's just how organized they are is, is uh, you know, light years ahead of a lot of the, the you know, what's happened in Canada. Although I, I definitely feel like squash Ontario's like improved way more uh, recently. And I think that you know, it's a good sign for squash in in Ontario and also in the U.S. Like, I feel like U.S. squash is uh, very organized and they've helped promote this sport and grow the sport like over tenfold from when I was a kid and playing against Americans. Like, it was, you know, almost no American people that were uh, playing squash back then besides hardball or doubles. So, yeah. Yeah. And how, how about variations within the game? So trying out different versions of the sport and do you think there's room and potential for that um yeah i mean i think when you're a coach like you get used to doing that when you're you know playing with you know younger kids um you know there's obviously different types of balls and rackets um you know now they i think in canada there's one softball doubles court um, so it's basically like, I think that's the game that they use in like the Pan Am games, um, instead of using hardball doubles. And, and when I was a kid, the club I played at had like two hardball courts and then four softball courts. So, you know, we did have that ability to kind of play some hardball and softball, but you know, hardball again, is just, if you haven't played it, like the ball moves so quickly, like the sport is, you know, the rallies are super short. Um, you know, it's going to be you know, if, if, if you're actually, you know, kind of skilled a little bit and you play with somebody similar level, like it can be fun. Like if you watched any of uh, Jonathan Power and Diego Elias, like they did a, a super squash Saturday thing and that was with hardball and it was better to watch than I, I thought it was going to be. And um, 
you know, I think that there are different versions, you know, just by changing the ball can change a lot. Um, and uh, if you've ever, I don't know if they have, they probably don't have hardball doubles in Australia, but uh, that's pretty big in Toronto and uh, kind of Northeastern United States. Um, mm -hmm. So that's something that, you know, a lot of the older people, they, they can't quite a, can't handle the singles quite as well, then they kind of move on to that. And yeah, uh, yeah there's a lot of ex-college uh, uh, players also uh, kind of playing the pro doubles tour. So, you know, you, you, you know, it's hard to find any of that stuff online. Um, but I, I believe they do kind of live stream some of the, uh, the events. So. Right, right, right. That's, that's, uh, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm not aware either. I actually don't know if we have it, if we have any of that here in Australia, but, uh, I'd be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. We do have, we do have a couple of, uh, the, uh, the future of squash as they're pitching it, which is interactive squash. And I don't know if you, if you know too oh, much yeah. of yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, that's, that's one of the things that uh, has a lot of people talking. And I know that they're doing some work with the PSA as well, uh, the organization called uh, Fun With Balls from Germany, who, who owned that project. Um, and that's definitely an exciting prospect for squash, in my opinion. Um, I don't know if you, you're too familiar with it. Is there, are there any of those installations in Canada? Uh, not that I'm aware of, actually, but I, I saw, I think it was just yesterday that uh, Birmingham University uh, got a court. So they were the first university to have a court. Um, I've talked to yeah, some people in, in um, you know, at Fun With Balls or Interactive Squash. Just, yeah. um, you know, I made like a video for them once to help promote kind of squash and stuff. But uh, yeah, I think what they, they've done is like made something that's like really fun for people who don't know squash and just want to have a racket and a ball and sometimes not even the racket, just throwing a ball. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's, you know, great way to bring attention to the sport. Um, you know, I, I, I remember looking at the cost, like it's not, it's not the cheapest thing. So uh, you got to have some money to get one of those courts <laughs> installed and then the kind of annual or monthly kind of fees to kind of run their, their uh, software. But uh, you know, if you can do it, I think it would be, you know, really, really, you know, great for, you know, bringing in a school, a class of kids. Yeah. And uh, they're going to remember that a lot more than just like, you know, a squash ball that, uh, you know, you know, I don't know, trying to have a rally with someone else who's never played. And mm -hmm. yeah, I think definitely for introduction to squash, it'd be one of the more fun things, even for somebody who's good. Like, I'm sure I would enjoy it. You'd probably really enjoy it too. Yeah, we're actually uh, been in touch with them ourselves and uh, once things open up a bit more they've got a couple of installations here in Australia so we will probably go check them out uh, and see what they're like so that'll be it'll be fun it's something exciting it's something fresh and new um, and speaking of fresh and new Chris I had one last question um, you know we're now sort of shifting into this space uh, which is almost like post-COVID restrictions in a lot of uh, in various parts of the world. How do you know, you know, yourself being a coach, being in, in all these networks and with these communities and uh, organizations and, you know, being in the loop, how do you think squash moves forward? And what do you see happening with the future of squash in the near future, but also in the long term? Will this change, will this change? the game in any way how will people adapt to this or is it essentially just going to be the same thing 
and it's just a matter of time till we get there. I mean, uh, yeah, I think it's going to take a long time to get back to where we were. Um, you know, I know now the club I'm working at, like it's only singles bookings, um, you know, which is fine. Like I've done a lot of like solo hitting in my life. So I'm basically, you know, just going to be posting like different videos they can do, different drills. And then I'll do some fun kind of club challenges and say, here's like kind of, you know, let's see who can do the most of this drill or whatever. Um, so you try to have fun with it. Um, been trying to like do some online live workouts for the members too. Um, so they're kind of staying kind of fit for squash. Uh, and then eventually I think the next steps here are, you know, same household hitting, which should happen in the next week or two. Um, and then eventually there'll be like these bubble groups so you can play normal squash, but it'll be, you know, three, four or five people and you can only play with them. Um, so if anyone does end up getting sick, then it's only those that small group um, who has to really be tested or quarantined. Um, you know, I can't, I'd be hard to see tournaments happening, like for sure, the first part of next season. Um, you know, I just think that, you know, you, you probably don't want to have 100 people in a club at a time. So, you know, I've thought about different ways, like maybe doing uh, like a small tournament. Like I know, I think in New Zealand, they're doing like an eight person tournament. They've had a couple of those. So I think doing like a small tournament. So instead of doing all the divisions one weekend, you might do just one division or two divisions on a weekend, just make the draws small. So everyone's spread out. Um, and then you can go and do the weekend or the, that tournament over a course of six weeks or eight weeks. Um, you know, I think that's one idea you'll probably end up doing a lot more streaming of matches. So people from a club or from around the world can watch the squash and not have to be in attendance. Um, I'm sure we'll lose like some people because either, you know, they're a bit older. Um, they don't want to have that risk of, you know, squash is a high risk sport of, you know, kind of spreading, uh, you know, COVID. Um, you know, I, I know though, you know, there's possibility of like Richard Millman's produced uh, something like an eye mask, which, kind of is like a clear shield that uh, Mustafa Asal wears, but it's like a full face version. So it goes down uh, lower. So I think, you know, there is potential, like um, I think that's just coming out now that, you know, players could play normal squash now with that. And, you know, it'd be very hard to um, kind of transmit anything to your opponent. I think, you know, the, the club I'm at right now, like we have a lot of protocols already in place about like cleaning after every time someone's on the court and, uh, the person, when they enter the enter the club, they have to wear a mask. And when they, you know, they can take it off once they get on the squash court. Um, but it's a very safe, clean environment. Um, so I think, I think squash clubs, you know, they're going to be a lot different. Like people aren't going to be able to wipe their hands on their side, on the, on the wall to dry their hands off. Um, so I think if we take the right precautions, like we'll be fine. Um, you know, it's hard to say 100%. There won't be, you know, a single case in a squash club like it's going to happen somewhere in the world so it's just about the club really doing its due diligence and like being prepared and and doing everything they can everything they can to provide that safe environment and uh, getting the members trust to come back out um, but it could be hard to try to you know convince someone new to the sport oh why don't you come try this oh by the way like if you know it is a high-risk sport and you might have to wear this face shield when you play so um, yeah. you know I think it, it will take some time um, you know hopefully you know, the keen people, again, they're not going anywhere. Like people that love squash, you see them posting stuff out, you know, online about being outside, hitting a squash ball. Um, <clears throat> lots of people doing solo hitting now that they can. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, it's, 
been a long, long three months, the longest I've been off squash, probably, uh, you know, for quite a while. Um, so it felt good to get back out there this week and actually hit a few balls. So. Yeah, fantastic. And I'm, I guess on that note, you know, uh, wishing you all the best during all of this. And thank you for being on the show. For everyone watching, you can head on over to Serious Squash. We'll add the links. So make sure you check them out. Give Chris a follow. Follow his great work. And yeah, thanks for being on the show, Chris. Uh, no problem. Happy to be here. And hopefully, uh, yeah, you enjoy your squash next week. Absolutely. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. Uh, you're welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me.